We're returning this morning to James. <clears throat> uh, this is, I believe, is part four of a short series of messages <clears throat> in this little letter of James. <clears throat> Reading from verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if anyone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and they tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received, excuse me, <coughs> when she received the messengers and sent them out another way. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. <clears throat> Martin Luther, the great German uh, reformer, was less than complimentary about this uh, little book of James. Uh, he disparagingly called it an epistle of straw. In other words, he didn't think that it had much substance. However, even the greats uh, can get it wrong. And Luther was most certainly wrong when it came to his assessment of the book of James. Now it is true, if you read through it, uh, that it contains very, very little of the great uh, Christian doctrines uh, that the Apostle Paul so expertly and so eloquently uh, put forth for us in his letter to the Romans, uh, for example. And uh, actually, James didn't want it to be that. That was not the way he designed it to be. It was more of a, a practical book about Christian living, a kind of a handbook, if you will, about Christian living. Are you struggling with that camera? All right, is it not working right? Got it going? That's all right. I just, I seen him struggling trying to get that thing going there. <clears throat> and so that was his idea. So it's not a, an sorry, it's not a, a doctrinal treatise. It is more really just about down-to-earth living and some practical examples of how we can do this. And so you could say, if you wanted to, it's theology, but it's dressed up in dungarees and hobnail boots. It's theology and working clothes. Now, of course, to understand why Luther said those things and where he's coming from, you have to remember his background. <clears throat> because Luther came from a, an ecclesiastical system uh, that very much had a premium on works as opposed to faith and grace and still does to this day. 
But however, when he got the revelation that the just shall live by his faith, when he got that revelation, it totally transformed his whole life. His eyes were open to the wonderful grace of God. And then he began to realize that as believers that we, we walk by faith and not by sight. And from that moment on, as far as Luther was concerned, it was faith alone in Christ alone for salvation, full stop. That's it. That was it in a nutshell. And thank God he did get that revelation. It changed the whole landscape spiritually of all of Europe. However, his opponents from that ecclesiastical system that he came from, his opponents used and liked to use James chapter 2, those verses that we just read, in order from their point of view to try to prove, you see, that salvation was a works-based thing rather than just a faith thing. And so that's one of the reasons, of course, why Luther then uh, began to think that this book was a book of straw because he saw it as a contradiction against the writings of the apostle Paul, who was very much a, a, a faith alone for salvation preacher. Now, he taught a lot about grace, but that was a big emphasis in Paul's ministry. And of course, that was the very thing that changed Martin Luther's life. That was the thing that opened his eyes when he got the revelation of faith and grace in Christ. And so you can see why he had a bias towards Paul and this kind of a dismissive attitude towards this little book of James. Now, of course, actually what James wrote was not in any way a contradiction of what Paul said. We'll see in a moment. Uh, neither was it in contention with Paul. It was actually complementary to what Paul wrote. Uh, and so there's no clash here. Uh, there's no arguments. Uh, this is very complementary uh, that he had been writing. Uh, both approached it from a different angle, could we say. Uh, Paul spoke of the root of faith and James spoke of the fruit of faith. And James is not saying here that good works proceed salvation. But what he is saying that good works, pro, uh, not, not that good works precede salvation, but that good works proceed out of salvation. It's something that comes after salvation. Uh, neither James or Paul believe for one second that we are saved through good works. But they both believed, and particularly James is highlighting here, that after we're saved, then good works will flow from that. Are you still with me? That's what he's saying here. John Calvin put it this way. He says, faith alone justifies, but faith that justifies is never alone. Faith alone justifies, but faith that justifies is never alone. There's always something flows from that. There's fruit, there's works come out of that. And so <clears throat> James here is concerned that those to whom he is writing, <clears throat> which was primarily uh, Christian Jews who were scattered abroad, <clears throat> he was concerned that they had a genuine experience of salvation, that they had the real thing, that they weren't just making a profession of faith, uh, but what they actually believed was genuine, that it was authentic and here they are, they're being assailed with temptations we talked about from without, all kinds of testings that was happening and temptations from without, but also temptations that was rising up from within. And so all these kind of tests and temptations and trials was going on in these people's lives. And so now he's saying, 
We're talking about tests. We're talking about trials. We're talking about temptations. So he says, now, go ahead and test yourself. Test yourself. See if your faith is real. See if it is a true confession of faith. Now, the Apostle Paul agrees with this. In 2 Corinthians 13 and 5, he said, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. It's always a good thing to take spiritual inventory, isn't it? To test yourself. To make sure that we're not deceiving ourselves. That what we have is real and genuine and it will take us into eternity. That we can count and depend our whole lives upon it. That it's not just something that's fleeting. It's not just something that we dreamed up. It's not just something that we learned maybe even at Sunday school and picked up on it but have no real experience of it. He says, test yourself. Make sure that what you got is real. That it's lasting, that it's genuine. So how do you test yourself? To test the root you need to examine the fruit. To test the root, you need to examine the fruit. We may be talking the talk, but are we walking the walk? In Matthew chapter 7, for example, there was lots of uh, empty professions in Christ's day. As we'll see in a moment. (coughs) Beg your pardon. Uh, Verse 15 Jesus here is talking about false prophets, but the principle is the same. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and is thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. So no matter what a man or a woman professes, no matter how loudly they profess they are a Christian, the evidence of that will be the fruit in their lives. What is the outflow of their lives or Are those just empty, vain words? Or are they themselves deceived, thinking that they're Christian when in fact they're not? So the fruit will prove the root. This is what the Bible's saying here. In Matthew, sorry, chapter 3. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, John the Baptist is baptizing many people. And of course, this was a a sensation. I mean, it was the talk of the whole country. And the scribes and the Pharisees uh, wanting to get in on the act here. Verse 4, Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair, a leather belt about his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when they saw many... But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers. He was quite blunt, wasn't he? How do you like John the Baptist for your pastor? Hmm? Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. 
For I say to you that God is able to raise up, children, raise up children to Abraham from these very stones. So they were coming along, trying to get in on the act. And yet there was no repentance, no genuine repentance on their part. Because they really felt they were good enough. But they would go through the procedure. I mean, they didn't want to look bad. This was a good thing that was happening. They wanted to be in on it, but they wouldn't want any change in their life. And so John recognized that, and he upbraids them for that. And he says, therefore every green tree, sorry, and even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore every green tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water under repentance. But he is, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so we see that John was making it very, very clear uh, that there had to be a genuine uh, repentance. And then uh, we want to read then John chapter 2. couple of verses here. <coughs> Second chapter of John. I can just find it quickly. And this is relating to Jesus. And in verse 23, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in him. So in other words, many, it says, believed in his name when they saw his signs, his miracles, but he did not feel they were genuine. They were fascinated. They were startled. They were curious. They were amazed at the signs, but there was no true inward change of heart. And so Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and he knew their hearts. In John chapter 8, just a few pages over, verse 28 then Jesus said to them when you lift up the son of man then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of myself but as my father has taught me I speak these things and he who sent me is with me the father has not left me alone for I always do those things that please him and as he spoke these words, many believed in him. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now Jesus here is, is picking underneath the surface. Many believed in him. But to what extent did they believe? To what extent was there a heart change? To what extent would fruit come out of that belief? So, Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you're my disciples indeed. You'll know the truth, the truth shall make you free. 
They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. So how can you say you will be made free? So as soon as Jesus picks underneath the surface, you begin to see what is really there. Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you're Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do not, and you do what you have seen with your father. And they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were truly Abraham's children, in other words, I know you're his physical descendants, but if you were his spiritual descendants, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. They said to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, then you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources because he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth and you do not believe me, which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. Now, that's a pretty hard-hitting thing, isn't it? But Jesus is leaving them in absolutely, without any question of where their hearts truly were. That all started off grand, didn't it? And many believed in him. But did they really? And Jesus knows who does. And he says, if you do, then you will believe my word and you'll love me because of my father and so forth. See, there'll be fruit come from that. And so, in John 15, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> verse five, I am the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples." And so in all of those scriptures, what we're saying is this, that there has got to be more than a mere confession of faith. There's got to be more. If that faith is real, if it's genuine and it's true, then there will be fruit come forth from that. It will become evident, in other words. It will be seen. There'll be evidence of that faith. This is why in Ephesians 2, 8 and 10, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So let's make it clear that we're not saved by works. Never. Impossible. Can't do it. Cannot be done. 
Paul's making that absolutely clear. But, he goes on to say, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, it's no good saying, well, I'm saved by faith, but there's nothing flows from that. Nothing. If that's the case, then we need to examine ourselves to see, are we in the faith? Because both Paul and James and other writers like Peter and John make it abundantly clear that if we're saved by faith, through, by grace, through faith in Christ, then there will be a flow from that. Then fruit will come forth and people will see our works. The Apostle John, in his little uh, epistle, his first epistle, in chapter 3, <coughs> excuse me, verse 7, he says, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever is born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, you have to, you have to qualify that. He's not saying that once you're saved, you get through the rest of your Christian life without sinning. Because he also says, if anyone says he does not, has not sinned, he's deceived himself. But it means that we don't practice it. it. It's not our way of life anymore. It's not something that's our custom and habit to do. It doesn't mean that we couldn't, or that we couldn't sin, or we couldn't fall. Of course we can, because we're human. But it means it's no longer our propensity. It's no longer our practice. It's no longer something that we, we want to do and enjoy doing and continue doing. That's what he's saying. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another, not as Cain who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so John gets down to the very nuts and bolts of this living faith uh, that we have. And so with all of that in mind, let's briefly have a little look at those verses that we read right at the beginning. And let's just unpack them just a little bit. We're in good time and we're fine. Let me ask this before you can... Are you warm enough? Are you still okay? Because I'm not sure what the heat situation is. I'm boiling, but that may not mean that you're boiling. <clears throat> Chapter 3 then, verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, that means 
It doesn't mean completely negative. It means if they're poorly clad, ill-clothed, and undernourished. So what does it mean if one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled? In other words, God bless you as you go. <laughs> Stay warm, eat plenty. And you know they're starving. And you know by looking at their clothes that they haven't got very much. He says, what in the world does that profit? In fact, that person you just said that to would probably think you're the biggest hypocrite that ever lived. They would look at you almost in despair. How could you say that to me? So he's using this as an example. But do you not give... An, uh, sorry, read that again. And one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have good works, is dead. It's useless. It's unproductive. It's not going anywhere. It's not doing anything. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So it's no good just saying, well, you've got faith. That's, that's, a, that's a wonderful thing. It's a very spiritual thing, that. Very mystical thing. But I've got works. I'm very practical, you know. This is not an either-or thing. This is faith and works. This is works that flow from faith. This is what James is saying here. So he says, You believe that there is one God. You do well. Now, he's a wee bit sarcastic here. If you read it in the resonance, he's a wee bit sarcastic. There's a wee bit of a bite in this statement. You believe there is one God, wonderful, brilliant, great, big deal. Because then he goes on to say, you believe there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe that and they tremble with fear. So in other words, you say, well, I believe there's one God, big deal. So What? Even the devils believe that. Do you know the devil's not an atheist? You know that, don't you? You know there's not one atheist demon in all of hell. All of them believe that there is one God. And all of them believe that that one God has got one son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They all believe that. And they all believe that Jesus came to this earth to live for us and to die for us. And he rose again for us. They all believe that. You couldn't convince them otherwise. And they all believe he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And every single one of them believes that he's coming back to this earth one day. And they all believe that one day he'll put them all in the lake of fire. They all believe that. They're absolutely convinced. Shows you how foolish atheism is when even the devil doesn't believe it. So he says, you believe that there is one God. Now remember who he's talking to here. Jewish Christians scattered abroad. You believe that there is one God. You see, the great Jewish prayer is in Deuteronomy 6 and 4. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is 
one. And thank God they were monotheistic. Thank God they believe in one God as we do also. Thank God for that. That's a good belief. That's a proper belief. That's a biblical belief. So he says, you believe that. Wonderful. Well done. But he says, the devil believes that too. But what they struggle with was not Deuteronomy 4, 6 and 4. It was Deuteronomy 6 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. They struggle with that. And so he's scratching here. He's finding out. He says, test yourself. Make sure you're in the faith. Make sure that you're not just professing to be a Christian when actual fact there's no evidence of it. If there's no evidence of it, then you've got to question it. So then he says, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? And then he goes on and he gives a couple of illustrations to prove this. And again, knowing his audience, he talks about the patriarch Abraham. So then he also, to really make them, make them sit up and think, he talks about Rahab the prostitute. He talks about a virtuous man and an immoral woman. He talks about a man of the covenant, and then he talks about a woman of the Canaanites. Two total extremes, but both to prove the same point. And so he says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Now, this is again was one of the reasons why Luther struggled with this. Because Luther knew that in Romans 4 that the Apostle Paul used the same example, Abraham as an example of being justified by faith. James says justified.